I remember her telling me, I'm in Hawaii and I'm checking on what's going on. And she goes, you have to stop this. And I go, well, what? What do you mean? And she says, because you think that success is going to come if you're involved with, you know, you're checking everything. And she says, success is going to come when you have shaped the people working in the program. And all you're doing is they're doing all these things. They're checking on themselves. When you can not be involved, that's when you're a successful leader. Hey, how are you? This is Scott Bryant Comstock, and welcome to the Optimistic Advocate Podcast. And very, very excited today to have as my guest, Dr. Mario Hernandez, a professor in the Department of Child and Family Studies within the College of Behavioral and Community Sciences at the University of South Florida. Longtime listeners will know that Dr. Hernandez served as chair of the Child and Family Studies Department from 2008 to 2022. And today, I had the pleasure of visiting with Mario Hernandez, who is a, an old friend of mine, a colleague, but more important than either of those two things, he is one of the architects of the system of care movement in children's mental health, going all the way back to the early 1980s. The arc of his career is is a fascinating case study in what was going on in the early 1980s as this notion of system of care approach was being developed and formulated. Mario is part of the important effort in Ventura County, California, really laid the foundation for developing planning models for how a community should approach improving children's mental health services. We're going to talk to Mario about that, about those early days. And we're also going to hear from him about what it takes to build a successful department at the university level. Mario has done just amazing work, both at the university level in, in building a very successful department, but also with his national efforts to improve collaboration and cooperation amongst lots of different partners, researchers, policymakers, advocacy groups, all with the intent of improving services and supports that are delivered to children with mental health challenges and their families. It's been an amazing career for this fine man. And today, you get to sit on the couch with us and listen in. So relax, pull up a chair. It's a delightful interview. I think you're really, really going to enjoy it. You're going to learn more about Mario than you ever knew. You're also going to learn about what it takes to be a successful leader. He shares a lot of insights. So let's get into it. So Mario, how are you? It's good to see you. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you. You know, I start with my Mario Hernandez story. It was in the early 80s that uh, I was in North Carolina working for Lenore Bihar in the Child Mental Health Unit in the Department of Mental Health. And there was a William lawsuit going on in North Carolina, but she wanted me to read this journal article. And then one of the authors was Mario Hernandez. And it was on the Ven, it was called the Ventura Model or the Ventura Project. I can't remember. It's been called a lot of things, but we ended up calling it the Ventura Planning Model. And that was done on purpose, which I can explain. 
All right. And so, well, for a planning model, I mean, for me, it was great because it really gave me a so early in my career construct, a way to think about this new thing, which it was back then called systems of care. You know, what, what, what is this thing? So that's where I intersected with you in your name and, and, and I always had this sense of who you were. Never dreamed back then that we would become close compadres and, and involved with so many things later on in, in our career. So I just, just right, right out of the shoot, I just want to say I'm, I'm really grateful to you for the leadership role you've played in, in this movement for all these years. Thank you. So let's start with, if you could, give us a sense of, you know, what were the pieces that came into play that created this incredible advocate on behalf of children and families at the university level? I mean, because you've just done so many things over the years of highlighting the importance of research policy and this collaborative spirit of involving everyone, families, providers, researchers, in ways that help move the field forward. I mean, you really, you may not like to admit it, but you really have been a, a, an incredible force in the systems of care movement these past 30 years. So how did you get started with all this? Actually, I'm a graduate of USF and uh, my interest was animal behavior and I was doing research under a professor with crows and tool use, and the assistantship ran out, and my major professor, Dr. Jackson Sandler, gave me a little slip of paper and said, sorry, you know, this assistantship ran out, but go talk to this guy, Dr. Bob Friedman, and he's over on the other side of campus at the Florida Mental Health Institute, and he's opening up a program for children in child welfare that have emotional behavioral challenges. I'm like, oh. Not at all in what I was planning to do. So I go home to my wife I've been with for 50 years. And we met at Freshman English at USF. And I told her, oh, my gosh, look at this. I don't want to work with teenagers. I was almost a teenager myself, literally. And she says, well, go check it out. Go meet them. We need the money. That's a a famous line I'll never forget. (laughs) So... I went and I met Bob Friedman, yeah. and, and the rest is sort of history. It just changed everything I was interested in. I had to do my internship for a year, and of course, I, being from Tampa, I wanted to get as far away as I, I could to do my internship and ended up in um, California, in Ventura County, at the state hospital. And the state hospital had rotations, and I picked one of them at Ventura County Mental Health. And that's how I came to Ventura County and meeting Randy Feltman, who's like Bob Friedman, a a great mentor in my life. And he was working with a uh, a special ed teacher. He was a a social worker at the time. And they both kept collaborating and realizing how many of these kids had problems across systems. And uh, of course, Randy became children's mental health director very strong county systems in California, unlike a lot of other states. And Susan Lacey became a county commissioner. And then Ventura was selected by the state of California, by Betsy Burke and people at the state, to become the model for the state to implement a system of care. And so at one point, at some point, I forgot how Randy found out, because Bob Friedman had placed me on his advisory board for his research and training center. And 
they found out that I knew Bob Friedman. And so I remember Randy saying, do you, do you know? I said, yeah, of course. He goes, oh my gosh, because it was like, <laughs> I can't believe that you work here, you know? And so that was a fantastic partnership between Randy and I. And of course, that changed the course of my life there. So it's very fortuitous that I chose a rotation in community mental health and that I chose the, the county that became the model to implement a system of care for the state of California. That's total, as I've heard you say, kismet. <laughs> I love that. Oh my gosh, that's just amazing. Did you just stay the year and then come back? No, I, I stayed in California for 13 years and worked as a therapist at first. And then Randy Feltman reached out to me and, and wanted me to to become part of the system of care once they received funding, you know, after being selected and took a while to get the funding from the state. And they wanted me to lead the partnership between the mental health system and the special ed system. So that's how I started working in it. And for a long time, I didn't want to do it. I really liked being a therapist, 40 hours, 10 hour days. And I was very nervous about giving that up. And finally decided, okay, I'm going to do this. And it was the, when, uh, also one of the best decisions that I ever made. And we created something called Phoenix School, which is still there. And it was based on the RIED model, Nicholas Hobbs's RIED model. And we were very successful in this community-based program, getting kids from the state hospital that appeared to professionals in the system as hopeless and people that would never get out. And we emptied the state hospitals. And many of our kids ended up being integrated back into regular ed and graduating from a regular high school. And so that was how I got introduced. My Joanne, my spouse, was a special ed director in that county. And so that was also kind of a coincidence that I had the special ed piece. And it was just a fantastic fun building this thing and, and creating it and trying to figure out how to make it work. And, and one of the geniuses of, of how this was designed is that there was an advisory board that was created for this demonstration. And the advisory board was five children's mental health directors from five counties that were going to be the next counties to implement this if we were successful. And they were advising us on design, giving feedback on what we were doing. And when we talk about Ventura model, Ventura planning model. It really is a planning model. And that was also kind of a genius on Randy's part is that, and this advisory board is that we tried to avoid that this is how you have to do it. You have to have this program A, that program B. And what we said is, no, you have to start in kind of a public health way with who are your families and who are your kids? And find out who they are. Find out where they're at. How many of them are, are they in foster care? How many of them are bouncing in foster care? How many of them are in out-of-state or out-of-county placement? How many of them are in juvenile detention or on probation? And then you design the system based on a retrospective analysis of what happened to these kids. How did they get to where they were? So the system was designed around the needs to be first of the families and the kids. And the goals was never focused on the kids in our program. The goal 
was the number of kids in the county, whether they were in our program or not. So our charge was to change the trajectory of kids in our entire county, not just the ones in our program. And a lot of people miss that. It changes how you plan. It changes how you build. And that's why we called it the Ventura planning model, because another county could take it and go through a planning process. And their array of programs might look very different, but they arrived at it by first understanding who their children and families were and where they were and understand why they got there. And then designing the systems to interrupt or bend the lives of those kids and families in a positive direction. And um, that's why it's called the Ventura Planning Model. What years was that going on? Well, I've been here 30 years. So it was the, so it was the 13 years before that, around the early 80s. You know, I'm just, th- I'm just thinking about, you know, I get emails a lot from people who are, you know, wanting to figure out how to do things and where in the age of social media and this and that and the other and information is just everywhere. Of course, back then, I, I know that for myself, I've, I've thought in, in, in the work I was doing in North Carolina, especially with uh, Mike Owen, who hired me uh, with the Child Mental Health Training Unit, you know, there wasn't all this social media influence. So you kind of felt like um, pioneers <laughs> in a way. It was a time when it was, it, it often felt like it was just you and a few others trying to forge your way. I mean, did, did you meet a lot of resistance or was it open arms or what felt different about the planning model from what had existed before? Well, children's mental health had actually been shrinking funding-wise. And so people realized something had to change and that part of the funding for, for the system of care in Ventura was also to support a role that was important for children's mental health in each of the counties. And so we became the change agent within an interagency context to pull the other agencies together. And the goals for the children's mental health system of care were tied to the, the goals of other agencies that serve kids. So keeping kids, our, our kind of motto was keeping kids in school, out of trouble, and at home. And of course, each one of those connected to child welfare, juvenile justice, education, so that mental health became key to facilitating how these agencies worked to have one single plan for kids and also to give mental health a role that was defined by the goals that the other agencies had. And so rather than us picking and choosing whoever we wanted to serve by random, whoever ended up coming, there was a purposeful partnering with agencies and prioritizing kids that were the most at risk and and needed us the most. And that's how we started. And then we backtracked from, from there to, as we were successful, we backtracked to then the kids that were not as high risk. We ended up at the county emptying the state hospital for actually several counties. And we reached our our goals in terms of stabilizing placements in foster care for those kids that were going to be in foster care. Stabilized because a lot of the kids that we were involved with bounced around a lot. You know, they say the F word and cuss out somebody 
as a foster parent who's already tired with several kids in their home, he's out, you know, get them out of here or get her out of here. So we worked in a proactive way to stabilize. And of course, the partnerships across agencies, we did things like it was a girl foster, a girl in high school who had been in unbelievable placements and residential and everything. And her foster parents really liked her, but they became ill. They were older. And she had to move, they, they had to move her to another home. So we used, we would work with the child welfare, the foster care, said, wait a minute, there's 22 school districts in Ventura County. Can we keep this girl in the same school district? And so we'd work with the school district, try to find a foster care and the uh, foster parent in those boundaries. And if we couldn't, then what else could we do? If the, this particular girl was just a few months from graduating from a high school, a regular high school in regular classes, and she had become a cheerleader. I'll never forget, we created a, a slush fund when we heard about wraparound. That was new to us. We let the case manager working with his child who would pull together the agencies use the funds to, to let this girl become a, buy the things she needed to become a cheerleader. And so she had friends, and it was devastating for her not to graduate from this high school. So we work with the school district to bus her from the foster parent in another school district and drive her to the high school so she could graduate. And, you know, a lot of our interventions were like that. And when people would say, how do you, how do you make this thing work? And I used to joke and say, well, we're at the cutting edge of common sense. Because what I just described <laughs> isn't how expensive was that to do? Right. And if it were your child, wouldn't you do that? Wouldn't you advocate? Yeah. We would always tell people, well, what would you do if it were your child? Did you not get pushback for, for that, uh, you know, for that kind of innovative use of dollars? Or were the powers that be supportive of kind of the whatever works approach? Uh, put, pushback at first from the traditional outpatient therapists who were into wanting to pick what clients they saw, what clients they didn't see. Oftentimes, they themselves would recommend residential placement and trying to change people's minds. This slush fund, which was called Community-Based Residential Alternative Fund, people would joke about it. People made fun of me. And it took months, maybe even a year, for people to start realizing. So like this girl, that word got around. Wow, they got her this cheerleading thing and got her in. And they worked with the school district to bus her so she could graduate from high school. She graduated from high school from being in both in residential and the state hospital. And so how can I get this for my kid? It took a while for it to catch on. You know, there were those early adopters that they talk about. People made fun of me. Yeah. I remember starting the first parent organization and Ellen and Norm Linder, and I, I asked everybody, tell me. If you know parents that want to meet with me so they could create a, a family organization here in the county. And oh, did I get pushed back on that? And there was one case manager who got it and helped to identify Ellen and Norm. And they started United Parents, a trophy I have from them or whatever you call it, a plaque. That's one of my, my most prized uh, ones because, yeah, people did not like this. And I remember bringing Ellen and Norm to a conference that the mental health children's directors had and had them present with me. And I remember, I didn't know this till after I got back to Ventura, 
that some of the children's mental health directors had a meeting with Randy Feltman, who was my boss, to say, Mario is unethical. How dare he bring patients to these meetings? Yes. This is inappropriate. Oh, and we can't talk openly if they're at, at the meeting. And they were actually people that were going to recommend an ethical violation to APA, American Psychological Association. Randy defended me. And of course, the rest is history. Because then they were all these people that hated it. All were like, well, how do we start a parent organization once they realized? So there, there, was, there, was, push, there was pushback. And, and one, one of the other areas of pushback was the commissioner of mental health for the state at the time had been a director at Patton State Hospital. And he was a children's a child psychiatrist. And he had a patient, this young woman, and had her for years. She would cut herself a lot, and she was considered to be somebody that would live her days in the state hospital system. We had a program in partnership with the Devro organization in Santa Barbara County, right adjoining us. And she would be there at this, it's a, like a, a day, day treatment, but she would sleep there during, during the week, so semi-residential, mm -hmm. and go home on the weekends. And our employees who worked associated with this program, their days off were not the weekends. They were during the weekends to support these young people and the families to get used to having them back in their home. Because many of these families had grown to not be accustomed to having their child back home. And so people were very mad at us for this and thought we were doing dangerous things. And the, these people, these children from the state hospital, were we were going to harm them. So the state commissioner comes, this guy comes on the Devereux campus himself to see this program. At more like, I'm going to find out how is this, you know, this can't be possible. This is working. And is Yeah. And that day, that girl who had been his patient was visiting because she had already graduated from high school and she happened to be visiting. We didn't plan it. This was total coincidence. And she saw him, and she was calling his name, Dr. O'Connor, Dr. O'Connor. And he was like looking, and who, who is that? And this very healthy-looking, beautiful young woman, full of life, just comes up to him and says, you don't remember me? And it took him a while because the last time he had seen her, she was very messed up, and he couldn't believe it. And she told him everything that happened and uh, to her life and what she was doing. And it was like, it, if we had planned that, we would have been, and we didn't. But he was like, <laughs> this program works. So we had pushback with people questioning us. And we had these unbelievable situations that protected us. And, and of course, the rest is history. Wow. That is, oh, that, man, there's a lot to unpack there. So this happens, the commissioner comes and you're right that, I mean, the chances of that happen, it's just amazing the way that came together. So what happened next? So you get his blessing. So, so, so what happens next is, is we, we continued a partnership with Devereaux and we, we kept building the system as we had success. We would then try to move the needle in terms of the population of uh, children and families. We would try to move the needle further up, you know, like in, interrupt the trajectories that were headed in the wrong direction sooner. 
And then we had the other counties, Santa Cruz, Santa Barbara, San Luis Obispo, San Mateo, where, you know, I met Alfredo Aguirre, who's a great guy who also recently retired. And we were all young, you know, we were all the young ones, you know, at the time, Alfredo and I. So, so it proved successful. And I remember Monterey County at the time, they began intervening in the way I described, first knowing who the kids are, and then looking at their trajectory in the systems that they were most concerned about. And Monterey had a real issues in, in juvenile justice system. And they found where the processes of court and mental health, where they were getting jammed. And so without funding, they made changes in how to have a faster response in terms of an, a behavioral health assessment. And without funding, without because they already had some of these employees and, and funding, they just weren't working in the, in the system of care manner in a collaborative way with the same goals in mind. And they had a massive outcome. And actually, it was both wonderful that that happened, goes to show the planning model, but it also was a little scary because we didn't want the state to think that this was just free, <laughs> that they, they had to support behavioral health with funding because we were, we kept getting diminished. When you talked about social marketing, of course, there was no internet or any of that. And so we created like a, a newsletter and it was slick and we got, got a lot of pushback for it. We would focus on a child where we would take all the identifying information and talk about what happened with this child and what we did. We had an evaluation piece, which was key, that was independent. Abram Rosenblatt was part of that at the state. They looked at us independently. And we would have all the statistics and show the numbers. We would call it cost avoidance. For every dollar they, they spent on us, we offset this much money, which was well worth the investment. And so that was very powerful. So part of the model is you had to have a real evaluation. And the evaluation wasn't just about the kids and families in your programs as they are with evidence-based practices. There's a, a, a distinction that is confused a lot these days where you look at an evidence-based program and it may be very successful, but that doesn't mean you've impacted your county or your city or your community's numbers of what's happening to kids. It just means the ones in that program. And so when you say you have to change these things for a whole population in your county, it challenges how you strategize, what you do, how you intervene in the system like Monterey did. They interrupted bad processes and built, took the strangleholds out, and they had huge improvements. So it changes. It doesn't mean this. In fact, it was one of the frustrations I had of system of care versus evidence-based. There's no such thing as either or. That's a funding issue. The system of care was the, the organizing principle that you had the services live within, and then they were mixed and matched for kids and families in such a way that was individualized, but was not just about treatments or services, but was also about system in interventions. And system of care isn't just wraparound. You have to have system interventions to really even have wraparound work effect more effectively so you don't have to invent system changes for each family and each kid, but they're already there. And that, that's one of the things that I think has been forgotten 
is that it's not just about treatment and services. It's about how systems are organized and plan with each other in a collaborative way to get more than two plus two equals four. Two plus two might equal 10. And we've more recently forgotten that and focused more at the service level. And they're both important, but you can't have a system of care without the system level, how things are financed, how you figure out how to maximize where you're putting your money. And like I say, how the different systems work with each other. And again, it isn't to the exclusion of parents. We got pushback for that too. Oh, you're interagency, so why not parents? Well, if we don't have the infrastructure of collaboration among the agencies, there's no way for parents to effectively participate either. So when you create that infrastructure, there's something that families can become a part of as opposed to each individual family having to advocate for themselves. It's more of a system intervention. I'm thinking of you in, in the 80s. I don't know how old you were, 20, 21, something like that. Probably. No, <laughs> I was a little young. older than that, <laughs> but not much. <laughs> you know, you're renowned for really being the driving force behind logic models. And, and and just listening to you talk, I'm thinking, oh, that's where that came from. Exactly. That's where that no, exactly. stratified thinking came from. Exactly. Because I'm hearing it. And even then, you weren't using the language logic model, probably. Yeah. I don't think so. No. You know, I think that, that came later. No, no, that's exactly right. I work with a local foundation um, in Tampa, and they've used this now. Now we've evolved, and we call them strategic planning. Not strategic planning in the, t- in the, in the sense, but st- strategies. So the foundation now uses it. The board uses it. So I didn't know that when we were doing the planning model. And what I found that was missing is that with so many players involved at a community level, including parents, that there were lots of ideas, but people didn't have a tool to organize their ideas in such a way that they could all see their input and agreed to the strategies. And that, in fact, if you don't really understand who you're doing something for, which is part of this theory of change, what your goals are for, the, for that population, which should be driven by their needs. And then the strategies, you can't even understand outcomes because it could be that you're not implementing some of your strategies as you find out, which is why the system of care practice review is something that I developed with my colleagues here at USF, Sharon Hodges and others, so that you could see whether the services that were being offered were being offered following system of care values and principles. And see, the system of care is values and principles and how you think about coming up with solutions at the community level. And that's very compatible with what we call the Ventura planning model. And the theory of change was really a tool to help communities that needed a way to organize everybody's ideas so you could see them. And then you could, even when you had a strategic plan, if you were funded by SAMHSA, you had a way to organize your strategic plan around, well, what are you trying to do? So you're 13 years in California. For the length of that 13 years, started out as an internship rotation, and then you start doing this work. What else happened in that 13 years? And then what caused the move to uh, Tampa? Well, I personally grew a lot in terms of being comfortable as a leader. And I had also another wonderful mentor who she had been a special ed teacher and may she rest in peace, Linda Bigby, 
who became a friend of our family and, you know, babysat when we had kids. And she was phenomenal. And I grew as a leader. And I remember her telling me, I'm in Hawaii and I'm checking on what's going on. And she goes, you have to stop this. And I go, well, what? What do you mean? And she says, because you think that success is going to come if you're involved with, you know, you're checking everything. And she says, success is going to come when you have shaped the people working in the program. And all you're doing is they're doing all these things. They're checking on themselves. When you can not be involved, that's when you're a successful leader. And she's completely right, right on. It took me a while to understand what she was saying, but that advice has shaped my life a lot. And also raising kids, that advice is also really good for a parent. Like, what do you do with your kids so that you're not always going to be there? How, how do you shape things in such a way or, or support them to think in ways that they can be safe and, and be independent? Linda Bigby had a big influence on, on me, giving me confidence, and Randy did too. Randy Feltman, who also passed away a couple years ago, was just this total brilliant risk taker, just... He didn't see boundaries or, or anything. Uh, just all of this stuff would not have happened without his spirit and his way of thinking. And, you know, I'm the first person in my family to go to college, and my parents never graduated from high school. They didn't even finish junior high. And so my father, I, I grew up in, like, if you have something, you have to be very cautious. You hold on to it. You might lose it or something might happen. And Randy broke that in me. He broke that anxiety that I had being raised, kind of anxious about taking risks. And I'll never forget the moment of, I don't know what you would call it, that moment where, where you, he's told you these things, you see him modeling it, and you're still thinking, oh my gosh, this guy, I can't believe he's going to do this. He's going to get us in trouble. And then I got a call, and I was told my father was dying. He was going to you know, pass away within the next... 48 hours. And I told him, I called him up. I said, I'm not going to be here next week. I have to go. He says, well, why don't you go now? And I said, well, I have to, I, you know, I have dirty, I don't, dirty clothes. Well, pack your dirty clothes. He goes, how many times is your father going to die? What, what do you just pack and go now? And I was like, yeah, why, why not? And it was that moment, even though it had nothing to do with system of care, where it broke this thing in me that realized, yes, why am I so careful? The risk is not going, actually. And so I was with my, my dad when, when he passed. So th those were pieces of this whole system of care. There was also another wonderful mentor who's also passed away. Linda's passed away. Randy's passed away. And it was Milt LeCouder. And he was the special ed kind of, it's called a special education local plan area where he worked with a group of special ed directors around kids that no one school district of the 22 had enough of to support, you know, kids that might be blind, deaf, and develop, have developmental disabilities. I love Milt. My wife also worked with him a lot. And Milt and I shared something. We both have speech fluency issues. So I really admired him. And he would lead this board of special ed directors, and I would just watch him letting everybody fight and go and blah, 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 and my opinion, and I don't think we should be doing blah, blah, blah. And he would be quiet, listening, and he would wait 
for a moment where people were exasperated. And then he would say, wait, wait, wait a minute. If you all just give me a second, you know, the way he would talk. And what I think you all are saying, and he would almost use kind of a logic model. He'd write up on a, a not a, a, a whiteboard, a chalkboard. This is what I think you all are saying. And this is where I think we really agree. And we only really disagree on these one th- this one thing or two things. Everybody would say, oh, yeah. And he was a master at listening and organizing people's thoughts. And so he taught me so much. And he also mentored me in terms of being a leader of sometimes it wasn't you having the idea, but how you could be the person who listened and show people their best ideas to the, you know, showed the group their, their best ideas. And that there was more power in that because they weren't listening to you. You were reflecting back to the group. And so I would watch him do this. He was a master. So anyway, those were, that was sort of my growing up and becoming comfortable in a leadership role and having phenomenal role models. The the other thing, when I came back here to work with Bob Friedman again, because I came back home and you asked me, how did I end up back here again? One of the things that I really missed being in academia is that there was such energy that I got from seeing children be transformed and their families who felt hopeless have hope and not false hope. I'll never forget one of the families said, you know, my son still has really serious uh, issues, but we can handle it now because your system is here and he's better, but we know he's always going to have challenges. So even families that everything wasn't perfect felt good. And, and that energy is what gave me the energy to do what I was doing. You know, parents would come to my office. When you're in academia, you're removed from that. And a lot of times, somebody else is working on those front lines. I had to get used to that. I had to get used to, to not having that energy. So when you came back, what role did you have with USF? Well, let me back up a little bit about what I was just saying, if you don't mind. A man traveling on the Ventura Freeway who had serious issues, you know, like schizophrenia-level issues and had been homeless, and he stabbed himself, like, I don't know how many times, like, unbelievable that he lived, and he was in our county hospital. And he escaped when he was feeling better, and he, he murdered a 97-year-old woman in her backyard when she was hanging, hanging laundry. The community turned against the, the mental health system, the inpatient unit. We had to put temporary barbed wire fences around the unit. It was horrendous. And the person was in the hospital, not in the behavioral health system. But they turned and got totally freaked out about the inpatient unit and all of that in, behind the hospital. And the only time I ever thought that I was actually going to be injured severely or possibly killed was a very large teenager who we had gotten out of the state hospital. And he had me trapped when I was doing his assessment in an office. And I might have been 120 pounds at the time. And he was big and strong. I mean, he, he eclipsed my size. And um, he, he was going after me. And I got out of that. 
he went through the our program and totally successful, graduated again from a regular high school. You know, a lot of struggles, a lot of crises, a lot of things happened. These are not easy paths, but we had the Carl Dennis, no reject, no eject approach. And we would even tell kids, okay, you just tore apart the classroom. Okay, well, you have to put it back together again. We're not kicking you out. You just have, you have to put everything back. And they would be astounded because they were masters at getting kicked out. So we had to hire security guards. I think they were Pinkerton guards in addition to the barbed wire fence. And they were all around the building. And coming back to my main office from visiting the branch offices and programs one evening around twilight, there's hardly anybody in the parking lot. And I see the Pinkerton guard at the end, but I, you know, I don't, don't know who it is or anything. And I hear, Dr. Mario, Dr. Mario. And I'm like, what? Who, who is that? It's like, so happy to see me. And he's coming up to me. It was that kid who almost killed me. Wow. He was one of the Pinkerton wow. guards. He was, oh, he was packing this. and he was protecting the community. And it was like, <laughs> that is one of the most beautiful experiences of my oh, life. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Mario, so th those is. are the things that gave me the energy to keep pushing and, and, and working is that seeing these changes in kids and families, you knew that we were, what we were doing worked. And, and it wasn't always about you got some kind of special treatment. It was sometimes, like I say, it was on the edge of common sense is how do you organize things in such a way that they make sense and that you would want for yourself or for your own child? And if you thought that way as a system, you just do things differently. Yeah, oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. All right, so you come back to Tampa. You, how, how did you get back into the university system? Bob hired me and I came back home and came back to work with with bob and i worked at first funded by the annie e casey foundation had a urban men mental health initiative and so i was working on their sort of temporary grant money it wasn't until later that i was able to get into a tenure position and then you know become a full professor Help me with the structure, because it was FMHI and, and CFS. The FMHI stood for Florida Mental Health. Yeah, the Louis Delapart, uh, who's a fantastic local senator, the Louis Delapart Florida Mental Health Institute. And it was actually not part of the university yet. It became part of the university. So it used to be kind of a standalone, and, and then it became part of the university. We didn't offer any academic programs or anything like that. And I became the chair 12 years ago. When Bob Friedman retired, so I, you know, that that's that's where I sort of entered your universe right at that right. transition is is with the Children's Mental Health right, Network. Right. That's where I really where I really really got to right. know you. But in the time leading up to that, what kind of uh, changes did you see, and just sort of the, you know, more on a national level, I guess, of the uh, the incorporation of systems of care, understanding of what that, understanding of logic models, you know, how did all that, how did you see all of that grow or not grow? Well, it did grow and, and it, you know, tr tremendous support also because there was an evaluation component. And I remember Ira, Lori, I remember hearing from Beth Struhl and, and Sybil Goldman and others about how it was one of the only human service program that 
actually had an evaluation component. So there was tremendous growth, a lot of struggles. Some communities got funded, were probably not even ready yet. I mean, it, it's everything you could imagine when you expand so big. It kept expanding and, you know, lots of challenges, lots of struggles. And then this evidence-based practice kind of thing came. And again, like I said, it's a shame it became either or, like a, you know, system of care or evidence-based. And it, it's not. They're, they're not incompatible. They're actually part of something that's bigger. I, I think that was sad because... Again, they're both important. It's not one or the other. How they integrate together. I worry that uh, some of this concept of, you know, and Alfredo Aguirre in San Diego, he even mentioned this about, like, we, we used to focus on goals for a county, and now we're just looking at outcomes for the kids in a particular evidence-based program. There's a difference. So those kinds of changes. And it's just when you go to that big, massive scale. And I think one of the parts that I reflect on too is when I was in Ventura, every time we had a new governor, we had to rethink everything and figure out a way to have the new governor own what we were doing and let that new governor put their stamp that this was theirs now. And the people like Randy and others were really fantastic strategists of how to not worry about wording or anything and how to let the new political regime in the state take ownership. And that is one of the biggest struggles is that there's so many changes and so many of, in terms of political leadership, that political leadership, of course, never being stable because there's elections all the time, that then the agencies tend to separate it's hard to keep the policies the same. Maryland was able to do this for a while as a state. Ohio was able to maintain it. But that's the hardest part is how do you maintain this focus at the systems interagency level, reinforcing you know, wraparound services and all the evidence-based practices that can be organized. And my assessment is you know, how do we find a way to really make it well, I think systems of care should be mutable, that how do we have something that remains so that they're not lost with all, all of these sorts of changes? And that people understand that you can't think of child welfare independently of the kids in special ed or juvenile justice or the role of, of mental health, and that it could be that you might reduce the costs in one system by investing in another. And when the politics change and things aren't really cemented in place, the agencies then go back to competing with each other, when, especially if there's cuts. And so I think funding's always an issue. And so it makes us choose sometimes between fads. And that's what, what is very challenging. And the people that stick it out and fight it, they're, they're heroes to me. And uh, they're unsung because a lot of people don't understand what it takes. You know, when people say, oh, it doesn't matter who the governor is. Oh, they have no idea what maybe some leader in children's mental health at the state has been doing to keep some of these things solid. So I see programs in counties that say they're a system of care, and I worry that they're really just a shingle of a name of a program. And that's different than being a system of care, if, you make, if that makes any sense. It, it makes a lot of sense. You know, I was, while you were talking, I was thinking, you mentioned Ira Lurie, who was 
just a great champion at the federal level, but that was a different time. Yeah, I think of these generations, maybe I'm getting old, but I think there's these different generations of work. And at one level, you can think of those early days without the internet, that this is a simpler time, but it wasn't simpler. It had all its own complexities. And then you have the work that Bob Friedman did to really build a, a strong foundation for that era. And I, I'm fascinated when you took over as chair you also coincided with this explosion in just the general consciousness and social media and all of that began to take off. And so suddenly it becomes a different era in a way. In other words, you know, you, it's almost like you can't apply what you did in 1983 to today specifically. So I'm curious, as chair of the department, because you grew the department massively and the department is such an example of success, what did you see in terms of the changing nature of the landscape of children's mental health that you were able to tap into, which helped keep USF at the forefront. Bob Friedman is a cornerstone of the systems of care movement. And to, to take over that position is, a, you know, it's like that's a tough act to follow, right? But the world changed as well. So then it suddenly it was all different challenges that you had to face and and the world will change again after you and I are gone right and there'll be another set of challenges that leaders will have to face but what were those challenges that you had to face coming in that that you met and effectively managed to help grow your department to be as large as it is today well the first thing that happened is the research and training center ended because it came to a natural end and so that was big that was huge. And we were able to use funding that was left over to save the Research and Training Center Children's Mental Health Conference as the seed. And that's the partnership that you and I formed. And the two of us, me through the university and its business models, and you through your unbelievable network, and I mean personal network, not the Children's Mental Health Network, that we were able to partner in such a way that we made the conference self-funding. And that was a huge accomplishment. And then we had to gain some credibility because it wasn't driven by the same group of people, Al Duchnowski, Krista Kutash, Bob Friedman. I felt that for the conference to continue, it had to be self-funded. Two, that... And actually, I, I use the, the PBS, the PBIS uh, people who are in, in my department, many of them who were the thought leaders that started that whole movement and still are key. Uh, people like Glenn Dunlap, Don Kincaid, Rose Ivanone, uh, Lisa Fox, who's now the chair, and others. They created their own associations. They, they, they have their own conferences. And I thought, wow, here, system of care were dependent only on grant funding. How did they do it? You know, how did they do that? Because if you can't do what they did, we're not going to be viable. We're just dependent on on federal funding. And that we know can change or and what they're willing to fund or how they're willing to fund it. We see that with uh, with a, tr a training and technical assistance center how greatly that's changed. So we did that. We accomplished that. And one of the things that that we did was rather than it being you and I picking the agenda and our favorite people that we wanted to present, 
we formed partnerships like with Wraparound, with an evidence-based uh, work group, with a child welfare entity, with juvenile, and those folks did their own calls for papers for our conference. It went to their networks, and they were the ones that chose who got to present. We, were, we gave them slots, how many slots each of them had. And so the goal that, that we both shared was how do we make a community own the conference as opposed to it's only driven by us. So we had partners like Marianne Davis and Catherine Sabella, and as they were writing their proposals to be funded or refunded, they would include our conference, which meant they actually could show cost effectiveness in their application because the conference was there. And we gave them, like through agreement, they'd be able to have a speaker, a plenary. They'd be able to have so many sessions. And they also could then have special meetings or little programs within the conference. So those kinds of partnerships we worked at, it took a while. And there was a, you know, we have to regain our credibility to be able to make it owned by a larger group of constituents that all represented key players in systems of care across the country. And I think we accomplished that. That's one of the things that I'm really proud of. So within the department, you asked me about how did we get to where, where we are? Well, I went to visit a mental health center that had a system of care in Amarillo, Texas, where the Permian Basin and all the dinosaur bones are. I remember on top of the mental health director, children's mental health director's door, it said, evolve, migrate, or perish. And so I always choose evolve. And if we didn't really have expanded academic programs, we were in trouble for being devoured by some other entity on campus. And we also needed more than the one program that we had, which was an applied behavior analysis master's program, which Bob Friedman, Glenn Dunlap, Rusty Clark, and Lisa Fox were all involved in creating. And so that's just the reality of being a university department. A lot of times I, I remember colleagues at Georgetown you know, comparing us, but we're a university department. We're not a research and training center. And sometimes people saw the two as synonymous, and they're not. We have other research and training centers in the department. We have a USED, a University Center of Excellence in Developmental Disabilities, which is huge. It's the, one of the largest parts of, of our uh, department called the Florida Center for Inclusive Communities. So people just couldn't wrap that around. They just thought of Florida as a research and training center. And it was difficult to explain, no, we're, that's one of the funded things. And I realized that if you only eat one food and that food disappears, you're going to become extinct. And so we had to diversify what fed us. And we, we have a lot of IES, Institute of Educational Science grants. We have child welfare grants. We have grants with state entities across the country, as well as state entities. We have a hippie home instruction for parents or preschool youngsters. We're the lead for the state of Florida. We get over $5 million just for that one program that Hillary Clinton brought to the U.S. from Israel. We have a Center for Autism and Related Disabilities. We have all types of programs that are funded in all different ways and not dependent just on system of care funding. And that was something I really actively kept trying to develop. I, I remember an employee saying, I'd say, well, what do you want to do? You know, what, what do you want to apply for? Well, what do you mean? I, I, said, I said, what do you mean, what do I mean? Well, what are you up to? I remember this person telling another employee, what's Mario up to? 
It's like, what I was up to was asking you, what do you want to do? And so little by little, people started realizing I wasn't tricking them. And they didn't just have to follow me and what I wanted to do. That was only part of the program. And these other areas, like we're in every school district in the state of Florida, and we have international reach in the Netherlands using this model of school-wide positive behavior support in other countries. Our faculty are presidents of international organizations. So all of that just mushroomed and, and expanded. So now... We are the largest department on campus. Like the stock market, depending upon grants and contracts, we can be as much as 200, almost 300 employees. We're interdisciplinary, which is unique on campus. So we're not driven by the credentialing of a psychology department or a social work department. We created our own vision and mission statement. We are driven by that as opposed to driven by just a single profession. You know, I'm a psychologist. We have social workers in the department. We have educators, we have anthropologists, we have rehab and mental health counselors, we have marriage and family therapists. So we now have a rehab and mental health counseling program. We just started and have our first graduating class of our first marriage and family therapy master's program. We have an online children's behavioral health master's program. We have two minors, one in addictions counseling and one in applied behavior analysis. We have seven certificates, and we have two what are called cost recovery or self-funded programs, which are outside the university, and they bring in, people pay the market rate on them, not the state of Florida tuition rate. We have two. We have the first successful one on campus, because they had tried and many had failed, and we had the first successful one in our applied behavior analysis uh, program. We have a doctoral program now. So we have four master's programs that are within the university, two master's programs that are cost recovery, you know, paid market rate for them. So we've expanded huge in our trajectory of student credit hours, which is how one of the metrics at a university is just skyrocketing. Our students are all graduating on time. We have started recruiting better and more qualified students, you know, that have better scores and stuff. Our rehab program is rated 20, I don't know if it's 24 or 26 this year in the country, so that's pretty good. And so that was a survival to to do that. Without that, it's sort of like universities aren't going to just let a group of people working on a research and training center remain as their independent department. And again, because we are a university department, not a research and training center, we can confer degrees, and people don't understand that, the difference between the Georgetown Child Development Center and us. We're a university department. We have academic freedom. We have tenured faculty. If they want to compete with a grant against Georgetown, I can't say you can't do it. They have academic freedom. We also have about $70 million worth of funding. Again, that waxes and, and wanes. But we're a major part of the college uh, in terms of grants and contracts. We still have stuck to the mission of providing services in the vision of Louis Della Part to state agencies. And so one of the struggles is state agencies have low indirect rates or zero indirect rates to their contracts. It costs money to the university to manage these contracts. 
And so I've struggled to try to have like affiliations of faculty with some of these contracts because we're in every school district, because we have these early learning programs and we're all over the state and other states. How do we use that so that somebody can partner and apply for a federal grant, which has higher indirect rates? So, you know, all of those things are all complex. And probably the saddest piece is that when COVID hit, we had already gone for a while in planning the conference. And the conference was paid for by the conference before. But you're working on the conference. People don't understand how many months it takes negotiating with a hotel again. I mean, there's a lot of work before the conference happens months, months before. So we had spent so much of the money that there was no way to really have money left to have another conference without there being a risk to the college. And then again, COVID, you know, two years, I mean, we just c- couldn't do it. I think we were a week out. No, I think the... a little more than a week. I think it was a little was more Was it a little more than a week? Yeah, 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 yeah. It yeah. was a little more In than a week. two weeks? Yeah. It was close. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. hotel was like, what are you talking about? They what is this, COVID? Happy. I said, you haven't listened to the news? <laughs> yeah, and the university was oh, like, what's COVID? I never forget yeah, that. Exactly. Uh, and then it was like, okay, we know what you're talking about now. Uh, but th- that's that's sad. There's a loss there. Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the things that, that I will say is that we created a fantastic infrastructure in the department that supports faculty in applying for grants and then managing the grants. We call it pre and post award. And the reason we can do that is I'm funded by the state of Florida. So if I'm on a grant 50%, most deans take that money at the college that's saved from my salary. Our dean lets us keep it. And so we're able to reinvest it to support faculty in applying for grants, maintaining the grants, almost creating a shadow system to the university. A lot of universities, the faculty deal directly with some college-level pre-award person and even post-award helping you manage. And faculty are sometimes limited by how many grants they can apply for because of that and how many they can manage. So we help them manage their grants, you know, support their travel, their budgets, how, you know, and some faculty are fantastic at what they do from a training or research, but they're not very good managers of personnel or following the rules or also managing their money. And so that's part of the, the secret is that the dean allows us, we're able to reinvest that in supporting faculty. And faculty are, are reinforced. That sometimes gives us money that we still have left over. And it allows me to invest in faculty who want to do a pilot, and the pilot will help them then to have the data to apply for another federal grant. And so there's like an economy within the department that works very effectively. But we wouldn't have that if our dean functioned like most deans in the country. So the arc of from the early 80s to now 2022, you know, what's your message to people in the field? your words of wisdom, if you will, for those who are, you know, on the front lines of the work to improve children's mental health? What's the message? Evolve. (laughs) Be mutable. If you can't evolve and you can't be mutable, you're in trouble. It's a famous thing. A bamboo is so strong, but it bends. It's not just a silly saying. It's really true. I was once traveling in an airplane to someplace with Sharon Hodges, and I was reading 
a magazine that talked about mutable architecture. And it was like, I'd never heard that word before. We actually used that word in an article that we published about systems of care because that mutability means that you can respond to different governors, different changing politics to when cuts happen. What do you cut? What do you keep? And that concept of evolving and, and mutability, being able to respond while maintaining your values and your principles. And that's the beautiful thing about systems of care is there's a set of values and principles. And that allows you to always judge, okay, what do, what do we do now? This ha has happened. Or this is what this new governor is saying. Or this is what this new child welfare person is telling us. How do we anchor ourselves in our, how do we keep families at the table, youth voice? How are we community-based? How are we going to do that now? And I think that's the lesson. And what I'd like people to, to, to keep in mind is don't lose track of those values and principles and systems of care. And what you do to implement them may change based on what's happening. I remember consulting with, I think it was Wyoming, that was before a state Senate committee or something, their legislature. And there was a, a, a former senator who had met with every sitting president to that time. And very tough guy. But he was in charge of this children's committee, which tells you he also there was a heart. Or else he wouldn't be doing that. And pay attention to things like that. He was like, okay, I just heard all about this systems of care stuff. Now, I'm about <laughs> less government in people's lives. Why are you talking about all the blah, 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 blah? And I said, oh, well, let me explain. Systems of care is all about less government in people's lives. He goes, what? I said, well, if we interrupt kids going into juvenile justice, if we stabilize foster care, if we increase stability or return to home, and I went through all these things, I said, so this investment is all about less government because the outcomes we want for kids is to have them stay home in the community, not get in trouble. You know, and I said, those are all goals that are about less government in our lives. You know, make a long story short, explained it to him and he got it. It was like he got it. And we took a break and he came up to Sharon Hodges and I, and he says, I have something I cannot avoid tonight. You all are having dinner on me tonight, and I've already made reservations for you all at this place. And from now on, I want you all to call me, because you had to call him the senator. He says, you call me, I forgot what his name was, uh, Bill. And so the next day, we start the whole thing again, and I called him Bill. And this this person, <laughs> this person, and, and, I actually, and actually, before this particular person came in the room, he corrected me, and he says, no, Mario, I'm Bill. Okay, okay. Sharon laughed. We laughed. Okay, Bill. And so when this person came in the room who was detained at a meeting that he was at, he heard me say, you know, Bill? And he goes, what? Excuse me, sir. You refer to him as the senator. And the senator goes, no, no, no. I want him to call me Bill. <laughs> and it, was, it was one of those moments where, it, so, so one, of the, one of the lessons is 
don't be rigid in how you explain these system of care things. Yeah. L- listen to how people are thinking about it, either wrongly or what their frame of reference is. And even when somebody is talking about less government in people's lives, if you think about what the goals of systems of care are, that's really what they are. We're not talking about locking kids up. We're talking about not doing that. We're not talking about putting kids in residential placement. We're talking about keeping them home and making them successful in in their schools. And a lot of these things that systems of care are organized around are really avoiding more expensive government involvement. So listen to what people are saying. I I remember working in um, Contra Costa County Oh, this guy, he's he's a he's a pain. He's gonna be, challenge the meeting. If he starts talking, we're never gonna be. And so Sharon and I are there, and this guy starts in. You could tell he's very frustrated with the people in the group. And so we listened to him, and suddenly I realized, oh my gosh, he has the data. He knows where the bottlenecks in the system are. He knows he has the data and he knows why. And he's so frustrated because the group isn't working with that. And when we heard him, we reinforced him, and we reinterpreted him to the rest of the group. Well, he became sort of the hero and became a working (laughs) member in the group. And so listening to people, what they have to offer, and how to make that part of what's going on, part of the change. And I think that's what the theory of change approach that that we would use and that we worked with. I remember somebody from one of the satellite clinics, whatever they were called, who worked in the juvenile justice system, after we went through this whole theory of change in this county, he, he raised his hand and he goes, oh my God. He says, I knew I was working on this and I knew I was working on that, but until I saw this whole, you know, in old days we called it a gestalt, I didn't understand my part in this. And now that I understand my part, I know what to do better. I know what to do. Oh, wow. So, so, so yeah. again, it's, it's like, don't get lost in the weeds. You know, listen, listen to people and always try to bring a balcony view because groups have trouble finding ways to organize their, their good ideas and they get lost sometimes. And sometimes some of the ideas really aren't competing at all. They're just different parts of the elephant that we're trying to describe. You know, this famous story of people touching an elephant in different places. How do you make that make people realize? And that's Milt Lacuter's influence in me of how do you get a bunch of bickering special ed directors to finally realize they might (laughs) be talking about the same thing or different parts of the same thing. Well, Mario, this has been delightful. Your staff sent me this wonderful article that was in the La Gazzetta, that I'm, I'm hopefully yeah. I'm pronouncing that correctly, a profile of you. And folks, there's a whole other side to Mario Hernandez, his rich history, his family's rich history in the in the uh, Tampa area. Um, and so, so we're going to include that as well. Oh, thank you. I'm here because of the cigar factories in Tampa. And uh, my family were all cigar workers and... Uh, my mother was an amazing roller of the highest quality cigars. So I have a Spanish uh, Cuban, and Cubans were Spain, from Spain too, and Italian from Santa Stefano, Sicily. And we were all people that came here to work in the factories. And I uh, wouldn't exist without that background of people coming here to uh, have a better life. 
It's beautiful, brother. It's beautiful. Mario Hernandez, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. You're a gem, brother. Well, thank you. And thank you for being my partner and my friend. And I hope (laughs) we find ways to continue to work together somehow. I I do too. And maybe we should go have sushi. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll get you here to garden (laughs) with me in the summer. That's great. Mario Hernandez, it's been a delight. You're you're just a national treasure in the uh, behavioral health field and uh, much appreciated. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Scott. I think you are too. Believe the lights on and the door unlocked. If you drop on by, you don't have to knock. We're happy to share whatever we've got.